Today's program is part of a special series brought to you by St. Agnes Medical Center and Every Neighborhood Partnership with funding provided by ACES Aware. Together, we are working to raise awareness about the effects of adverse childhood experiences in hopes of building a healthier community and a brighter future for our children. Dr. B explains the importance of acknowledging our stressors of the past in order to thrive in the present. Plus, she shares practical tips for coping through challenging times and building greater resiliency so you and your family can enjoy healthier and more fulfilling life. Hi, you're listening to Delusional Optimism with Dr. B, where we explore human resiliency and learn how people thrive even after adversity. We break down the complexities of the human brain so concepts are simple and relatable. It's fun and empowering to understand how your earliest experiences influence your relationships today. What makes you tick? Dr. B is a speaker, trainer, and consultant who understands emotions and human development from the inside out. Let's dive into today's episode. Here's Dr. B. Welcome back to Delusional Optimism. I'm your co-host, Seth Creekmore. This is the second part of our conversation with Atlanta-based functional neurologist, Jerome Loba. If you haven't checked out the first part of this episode, you definitely need to. It was packed with brilliant practical information, both from Jerome and Dr. B. If you're interested in furthering this conversation, feel free to reach out to Dr. B at contact at drbconnections.com. Or if you'd like to know more about her, you can visit her website, drbconnections.com. All right, let's get started. So with both of you on the call, this is going to be a wonderful collaboration here. Jerome is also heavily involved in Enneagram and like neurology-based Enneagram brain things. And Dr. B, you specialize in ACEs. So real quick, can you give us a, a quick definition of ACEs? And then Jerome like lead us into some Enneagram stuff. Sure. Yeah. I'm so excited to learn about the Enneagram and its and its intersection with ACEs and uh, trauma. And so so the way I the way I like to simplify ACEs is it stands for adverse childhood experiences. It's really a limited definition because we know that so many things fall into an adverse childhood experience. And, but by definition in the research and sort of the landmark study that brought it to the surface is that there are 10 adverse childhood experiences that happen before a child is 18 years old. The the qualification to be an ACE is just a one-time event. So you could be, you know, you could have physical abuse one time or your entire childhood and it still only counts as one. And as we know, that's really a very different experience and trauma level exposure. So there's three domains. There's the personal physical abuse, emotional abuse, and then family dysfunction. And then in in the research, there's 10 actual categories that would be considered ACEs. I would now say that, and and I'm much more comfortable speaking to the idea that a lot of things that aren't on that list of 10 fall into the same category as ACEs. And because all of our brains are dynamic as we've been talking about, and our perception is so powerful and important in our senses in receiving information, how we take that in 
also contribute to its impact on individuals. So ACEs being in its most simplest form, an adverse childhood experience. And then how, how would you talk about that in relation to Enneagram? <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, I will say before I forget, one really great resource that, sh that demonstrates this really well with a demographic that is clinically and, and from a research standpoint, very, very well evidenced as, as being a good ACE population is the Enneagram Prison Project. The Enneagram Prison Project is run by a woman named Susan Olasek out of Northern California. They're in, I think, 13 or 14 different prisons worldwide. But they actually onboard their folks that they're working with in terms of engaging them with the Enneagram as a tool through ACES, through ACE study. Uh, oh, so nice. that's how they determine kind of, can we help you to understand? And they're also, they have one of the, the highest effective decreased recidivism rates of any program in prison because the Enneagram is way more effective than a lot of other stuff. So clinically, ACEs and Enneagram, Enneagram Prison Project is a great, great example of that. Um, that being said, I think this is one of the things moving forward in the next wave of kind of Enneagram literature that's going to really change things. I think Dr. David Daniels and a couple of other people were really leaning into the clinical aspect. But fascinatingly enough, this is why I wrote the brain-based Enneagram, because I was like, there's got to be somebody else that's already done this so far. But surprisingly enough, there is no literature on the neuropsychology tied to the Enneagram. There's lots of psychology, hmm. but there's no neuropsychology. And why that's really important is psychology is the interpretation of an experience based on the clinician's understanding of the particular person's encounter or story. Neuropsychology is getting, let's take all of that history, let's take all of that exam, and let's go, can we connect that to what we understand to be true about the anatomy, the structure, and the function of the brain, not just your lived experience. So it gives you a much more specific and robust picture, right? So for what it's worth, psychology and neuropsychology are different things, and they're both connected, but they're different. So when we're looking at ACEs, the reason the Kaiser studies and the reason so many other things that have existed around ACEs have been so powerful is they're connecting that the lived experience from the child's perspective is drastically changing what's happening to the human adult expression of who that person evolves into, who they become. It's basically a walking point proven example of epigenetics that you, can yeah. the, you can come into the world as a healthy normal human being but if you encounter trauma or an adverse childhood experience your body will dynamically respond the same way it does if it encounters the flu or chicken pox or poison ivy right it's going to start building protocols that say how do i respond to this mental or emotional psychological or relational stressor similar to how my physical immune system will respond so one of the connections that i would make between what Dr. B just said, and what I'm communicating from a neurology perspective, is that if you start understanding the Enneagram and start understanding psychology as different versions of literal immune responses, you will start mm. to understand things a lot differently. Your body encounters something physically, it has an immune response, it says, hey, if we ever encounter that in the future, you want to handle that faster, you want to handle that differently, you especially want to be more efficient so we can resolve it quicker, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now imagine yeah. doing that mentally, emotionally, relationally, psychologically, spiritually, whatever the case may be. It's doing the same thing. Can, it's building protocols. Does that make sense? Can I, can, yes. And can I throw one thing in there right before you start talking about the Enneagram? Yeah. 
it's sparking my um, thinking about like psychology in and of itself. But then where my my real interest area is are, are babies and brains. So it's parent infant mental health. And so what I oh and you used a different sort of descriptor, but I always say like, you know, in the first three to five years, we're really building the highway in which all the cars are going to drive on. And so if we build the highway in an organized way, then the cars are going to flow and information is going to flow and we're going to be able to be functional, functional neurology in our head based on our infant development experience with our parents and relationships. But if we allow that neurology, that the brain architecture to be built in a chaotic way, when information starts to come online, the cars begin to crash Yeah, mm-hmm. and they continually crash. And then we just continually make these weird accommodations and adaptations, which then lead to problems in our quote unquote functional neurology. Yeah. And so I think of you know, clinical psychology, but I also live in the world of infant development and mm-hmm. brain development. Mm-hmm. And so that's what, that's why this is so interesting to me is that mm-hmm. we can't just live in the now with adults because so much of this stuff all begins and can be so much easier if we were to start and really invest and think about, hey, let's just build a really functional, you know, highway system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sure, we can have lots of different ro- we can have lots of different off ramps, but you get to choose them. Okay. So I just yeah. wanted to get that That's in beautiful. somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I love it. And you know the 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 space that you're talking about there, Dr. B is 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 so important because this is the thing that helps everybody understand the concept of neuroplasticity is you have hardware and you have software. You have infrastructure and then you have function, right? Right, so yes. I Atlanta. Atlanta is a convoluted city. For <laughs> okay. <laughs> Atlanta's not winning awards for traffic. <laughs> it's, it's, or let me rephrase. It's winning the wrong awards for traffic. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So if you build the infrastructure, what you just described there in terms of that initial kind of experience of building things, the infrastructure building, The way I explain it to parents is all kids start out with dirt roads and copper wire. Okay. They all got dial up. And over the course of the first 30 years, the process is technically called canalization. It's just basically the brain converting all of those, those pathways into faster, more reliable pathways. So if you think of copper compared to fiber optic, different experience for us than it was for our great grandparents. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you think about dirt roads or gravel roads compared to paved roads or racetracks, it's a different experience. The adult is walking into the conversation with fiber optic and paved highways. The kid is walking into the conversation with copper dial-up and dirt roads. It's right. It takes time for the brain's DO, the Department of Transportation, to go out there and build it. But here's right. the amazing thing with neuroplasticity, especially at any age, especially with the Enneagram, you can have based on the infrastructure, based on the nature of your environment, based on what was nurtured, based on the evolution of what your city began to develop and what your country, world and population needed, based on the supply and the demand, the infrastructure will shift. Atlanta has changed dramatically over the last 50 years because the needs were different compared to LA or New York or Miami, right? Sure. Similar categorically, different in application. 
But if somebody comes in and says, like the Beltline in Atlanta, hey, we want to build a 22-mile track that connects everybody. You can ride a bicycle and get anywhere on Atlanta on one single road and not even have to touch the highway or a surface street. Well, can we go in and we, can we build a Beltline that connects the entire city? Yeah. We have to be intentional. It takes different tools. But the bottom line is somebody had to ask first, can we change what's already here? That's neuroplasticity. So your life is going to develop different pathways and different infrastructure and definitely even different hardware. But then we're not even talking about how do you navigate that functionally based on where you're trying to get to and from. Is there an accident, a traffic jam or like we had two years ago, did one of the highways collapse because a tire fire got set underneath it and one of the highways legitimately collapsed. Now you're talking about trauma. Now you got to figure out how to do yeah. everybody, right? So I love that. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. It's technically called canalization, but it's a fancy way of when people say, hey, your brain isn't developed yet. That's what we're talking about. Pave, yeah. dirt to pave, and copper to fiber optics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how does that connect to the Enneagram? How do ACEs connect to that? You know, when we're talking about the brain developing, most people say nurture versus nature. Technically, it's actually nature and nurture and discipline-based conditioning, meaning Mm -hmm. what did you come out of the factory with genetically and what were your parents doing while you were being built and before you got built in terms of resources, right? That's preconception, conception, in utero, right? All of that stuff is changing the system too, right? It's a resource. Yes. It didn't spontaneously come from the store. It came from whatever cells your mama gave to you. What? Or whatever. Right. (laughs) So there's a lot of stuff that's coming in as a precursor, right? As a preload. Right. So we're looking at nature in terms of how you were built. We're looking at nurture in terms of the environment that you're in, which is a very complicated term. But then we're also looking at conditioning, especially discipline-based conditioning. How did you receive discipline? How did you experience discipline? How were you disciplined? How did you transition into self-discipline and self-control? How did you transition into the discipline that you used in terms of your skill set and what you conditioned yourself to learn in terms of your capacity? All those things together collectively make you a human, right? Does that make sense? Yes. So when we're talking about the Enneagram, one of the really easy on-ramps for folks is to realize that there are three intelligence centers, and those three intelligence centers can correlate very, very heavily with most of what we see on the planet as normal everyday life. You have a gut center that deals with your body-based experience, your physical health, and your instinct. It's your brainstem, right? It's your reactivity. Mm -hmm. It's what you yes. do. Then you've got a heart center that helps you go, what's my nonverbal communication, my relational engagement, my emotional health, my feelings, the idea of how I engage in the world in terms of big picture conceptualization and right hemisphere responsibilities. And then you've got the head center. And the head center is saying, well, how do I critically analyze? How do I think? How do I deductive, deductive reasoning and logic? How do I really forecast what needs to be happen and activate my concern in a way that allows me to rationalize my world in a really practical, logical way. That's your left hemisphere. So everybody thinks, feels, and acts. They have a mind, a body, and a soul. The mind is the head center, the body is the gut center, and the heart is the soul. The soul is in the heart center. So we start seeing this global experience of what it means to be a human through nurture, nature, and discipline-based conditioning. Discipline-based conditioning is in the left brain, nurture is in the right brain, and nature is in the gut center, or those ways, there's lots of ways to connect it. Here's how it connects to ACEs. The reality of the way that I work with patients when I'm looking at something that they have come through and something that they've encountered through both the neuropsych, the neurology, the psychology, the adverse childhood experiences, whatever their 
perspective of their lived experience is. There are three factors that you can look at, which will you also mentioned it in terms of is it one ace or a, rep a repetition of aces. In order to understand the severity or the overall effect or impact of an experience, you look at intensity, frequency, and duration, which means if it's intense, how strong was that encounter? If it's frequent, how often does it happen? And in terms of duration, how long did it last, right? Two examples for me. My dad passed away when I was a freshman in high school, and I know exactly what it sounds like for my mom to break my dad's sternum, giving him CPR after he'd already left. Mm -hmm. How many times did I need to hear my dad's sternum break to remember exactly what that sounded like and what it feels like in my body to even tell you that story, and it's been 23 years. It mm -hmm. happened once. That's intense. I yes. went to 11 different schools before I graduated high school, and we had to change schools three times because of bullying, because I was a white kid with an Afrikaans accent who didn't look like the kids that I grew up with in Northeast Tennessee towns. So do I know what it's like to have to change schools because you're the immigrant kid who sounds funny? Now, was that very intense? There were intense moments. But what was the frequency of that? Most of the time when I was getting peppered with the bullying or the micro stressors or the microaggressions, it was happening in two to three minute windows. It didn't last very long. Were any of them really intense? A couple of them, but most of them not. But were they really frequent? Yeah, they happened a ton, right? Mm -hmm. But then you're looking at those encounters and going, okay, well, what does it look like to understand? It wasn't really intense and it didn't last very long, but it happened a lot, so it was severe. One event with my dad, tons of small events with bullies, severe. So you're looking at these things and going, it can be a combination of that. Um, I, I say in service of survival, it's yeah, the only job. <laughs> yeah, 100% of what your brain does on a daily basis, not 95 or 98, 100% of right. what it does starts with a question, will I survive? The question is how quickly mm -hmm. can I get to the question of am I safe? And then how quickly can I get to the question of will this be gratifying? So let me use a quick analogy with you, okay? And Seth, you can answer these questions for me. You ready, bro? You don't need a neuropsych degree, okay? All right. Okay. If, if all a right. bear is chasing you in those Indiana woods, you go outside and all of a sudden that, that rabid dog from your next door neighbor who doesn't know how to get tied up properly runs mm -hmm. wild and you're running for your life, okay? You're running from a bear in the woods or somebody's chasing you with a gun. What are the chances that you're asking, am I safe? You're just going, am I going to yeah. survive? You don't need to ask if you're safe. That question's already been answered for you, okay? Right. Now, if you haven't seen the bear in 10 minutes or an hour, you're starting to go, okay, well, to what degree am I safe? Mm -hmm. If you haven't seen the bear in a year, are you asking yourself if you're safe or if you're going to survive? Maybe not, right? Mm -hmm. But then as soon as that twig breaks and that sound in your brain goes, yeah. and you haven't seen the bear in two years, you know exactly what your brain goes? Bear, bear. <laughs> right? It assumes right. it's a bear until proven otherwise. Now, the reason that that's really important and how it's tied to ACEs and clinical outcomes is if you're running from a bear in the woods, what's the chances you're going to stop and take a poop? Okay. <laughs> yeah, not, 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 not very likely. What's the chances you're going to stop and enjoy a meal, right? You're going to lay down and have a good nap, have a good sleep, <laughs> right? What's the chances yeah. you're going to go, now's the best time to have sex? <laughs> there's a bear actively chasing you okay mm -hmm. are you going to stop and have a board meeting about how to handle the bear because no, you know if jim stops no. and has a board meeting no. had, what, what is what, what does jim think jim's dead okay the bear ate jim right because jim stopped <laughs> i ran faster than jim yeah just yeah. run faster than jim okay yeah, yeah. Saying this is if you go into a survival response and all the survival response is that your parent is telling you you need to go to bed 
or they want to take your iPad, or you're going in for a shot, or you have to go for a cleaning at the dentist, or your spouse is about to ask you a question about commitment, or you just got an email from your boss that says, hey, I need that project an hour earlier. Your brain doesn't know the difference between a bear and a deadline. So if you have something due or you're running late for a flight, your brain will legitimately and literally respond as if you're in a life-threatening situation. So you lose your appetite, you lose your ability to digest food, you lose effective regulation of your digestive system, genitourinary system, bowel and bladder system, you can't sleep properly, your anxiety goes up, your sensitivity to sight, sound, touch, smell, taste, movement, everything goes through the roof because you gotta be aware of where, where's the bear. So if you see that sustained stress, in different populations, this will start to give you an understanding of why does a BIPOC population have such different health outcomes than a non-BIPOC population? Mm-hmm. Because you're talking about generational trauma of survival responses, right? That right. white folks yeah. just haven't dealt with. Let's just be yeah. straightforward. So my point with that is when you have a year of that, and anybody who's like, I don't know if that's true, ask yourself how much more mentally, physically, and emotionally healthy you feel right now compared to January of last year. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that was a year of stress. Now imagine it's a decade or two or four or five generations or 10. So we've got to understand that as we go through a survival strategy, our body is naturally designed to shut down really, really, really key things tied to rest and digest. And what you yeah. see with the Enneagram is the Enneagram is showing you what your survival strategies are. If you understand what triggers you, then you start to understand what motivates you, not only what you're trying to pursue, but what you're trying to avoid. Because here's the last point that I'll make with the ACEs. I don't think for the Enneagram or for ACEs, it's strictly tied to trauma. That's not what I think it's tied to. I actually think it's tied to either an excess of negative reinforcement or a lack of positive reinforcement, right? Meaning that you can have a child have the same trauma response, which isn't in the literature right now, Dr. B. I think it needs to be. But you can have a child have the same trauma response because you keep taking their reward loop away. And because you've reduced their access to pleasure like an iPad, they're having the same response as if they're going to die because they've lost their pleasure. Now you take a Mm -hmm. kid who you introduced pain to, the number of times that they encounter the pain creates the ACE. But in both situations, you're decreasing self-gratification. You're either introducing pain or you're removing pleasure. And in both situations, the brain goes, that is not life-giving. In fact, it feels life-threatening. But life-threatening could be that you introduced pain or that you reduced pleasure. And if you understand that from an Enneagram perspective, you start to understand why some numbers and some spaces are provoked by some things being introduced, which is a pain point you are trying to avoid or something being interfered with, which is a life-giving, pleasure-seeking safety mechanism of self-soothing and self-medication that you're interfering with. So if you interfere with something, it's a different trigger than if you introduce something. You interfere with a goal, you introduce something that you are trying to avoid, but both of them trigger you and can create adverse experiences. If they happen when you were a kid, they happened before you had enough of a faculty and an executive team to decide and rationalize whether or not that was relevant. And now your brain thinks that you've been running from a bear you haven't seen since you were seven. But that's your right. personality. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, long answers to short questions here. You're good. Trying to boil You're the good. ocean. <laughs> no, it's really, it's so great. And it's so refreshing to hear somebody talk about ACEs and the, the brain and how the brain works in different language and different stories. And so, and it all makes so much sense in, yeah. in a practical, you know, 
general population kind of way, which is where I think we need to go in the universe, is that this becomes our norm. This becomes the way we, uh, because we can't really understand out there. We can't understand our world and our environments until we understand in here and in here. Yeah. And so when if we can start to understand ourselves and our relationships, we grow outwardly in, in terms of how we can understand our communities and our world. I'd love I'd love for both of you to answer this. Both of you have had well traumatic pasts and some really difficult things happen to you in your in your lifetime. This being the delusional optimism podcast and, and both of you seem rather resilient, optimistic humans. How do you do it? What is what are what are some ways that you've found that have really helped you keep going? I think we're both really funny. <laughs> 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 Humor. That's great. Yeah. Levity, Levity definitely noted fan. Um, yeah. For sure. Uh, especially what you don't know as much about this, Dr. Beak, but my twin brother and my older brother are both high in seven with eight wings. That's their okay. most efficient. It's not their type, it's their most efficient expression. Okay. But um, I think for me, and why I say that is they're, they're very sensational, funny people, and they help me. <laughs> I, I'll give you the short answer that I give to parents, Seth, in my experience that resilience by definition is knowing the difference between discomfort and trauma as quickly as possible. And if you're trying to determine, well, how do I understand if it's trauma or if it's discomfort, is simply ask, Mm -hmm. how long will this hurt? How long will it take me to recover? If I go to the gym and I work out for three days, being sore is part of the process, it's par for the course. It is not problematic. It's not even scary. It's expected, right? That's Mm -hmm. risk tolerance. That is pain tolerance. It is not trauma. It's discomfort. In order to Mm -hmm. become stamina and uh, become stronger and build stamina, I have to actually have microfiber tears of the muscle. It has to be naturally reinforced by things that I can't control and I get stronger, right? So my only responsibility is not to freak out when I get sore because that's part of the process. But if it takes longer than a week to recover, you overdid it. But at that point, it doesn't mean it's trauma. It means you overextended yourself, right? That's a sprain or a strain. Mm -hmm. But if you injure yourself, you tear a tendon, you fall off of a box jump because you went into a weekend CrossFit trainer who thought he knew what he was doing and he jumped too high (laughs) and you hit your head and you cracked it open and you're in the hospital for four months, that's a trauma, okay? Mm -hmm. So is it uncomfortable? Is it a sprain or a strain or is it a trauma? The easiest way to know what is trauma versus discomfort is how long does it take to recover? How long does it hurt? And if it hurts for less than a week, it is not a trauma, full stop, Mm -hmm. period. I don't care if it hurts like hell three days later and you can't even sit down on the toilet and use the bathroom because you've got muscles that hurt you didn't know you had. (laughs) <laughs> right. We have that happen in relationship where I'm in the middle of a conversation with somebody and I'm like, I'm tender. I'm walking light. I'm uncomfortable around that person for two, three, four days. If it doesn't hurt for a week or less, if it hurts for a week or less, it is not a trauma. So for me personally, especially in the things that I wrestle with, because I have a 100 full blown independent migraines per year, I have eight to 10 on average per month on a good month. Every time I have an aura and I know I'm 45 minutes away from feeling terrible and I know I have to work with an out-of-state patient who has a five-year-old they need to speak again, that's heavy. 
-hmm. I have to be in a space where I go, this is not life-threatening. I'm not going to die. I feel like I'm dying. And no matter how bad my migraines have been, none of them have lasted more than three days. And I need that framework. I need to know that I am not a migraine. I move away from an identity statement of being. I don't have migraines. That's a statement of ownership. And I didn't buy my migraines. I don't want anything to do with them. If I could return <laughs> them, I would. But I do experience migraines. And knowing that there is a time factor that lets me know it will end at some point doesn't mean that I will recover from it or avoid them forever. But it means that when I encounter them, I know to some degree it has a time limit to it. I, I have to know that it's not going to kill me, even though it feels like it will. So discomfort versus trauma, how long is it going to last? And is it life-threatening? Because if it's not, it's not. Mm -hmm. And then I can adjust my response. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's a great way of describing resilience. I just am so fascinated talking to you because I so rarely get to have this kind of depth of conversation about similar topics, but in such different ways. Mm. So thank you so much for Thanks engaging for us yeah. today. Yeah. yeah it's so, so fun. Yeah. Because all, my little weird version of, I, I, I use resilience, I say resilience is the ability to overcome adversity. And so it's, I feel like it's very similar, different language. You know, it's that risk tolerance. How much of this can I manage and still believe that there's light at the end of the tunnel and I'm going to come out of it? Yeah. And I think that as a person who has struggled with adversity, but off, but, but somewhere in those relationships and building the architecture of my brain, because I had, I had good constructors or at least some of them, that I have this ability to adapt in adverse situations to manage pain. And I, and I say pain like as that, it's not necessarily physical pain, it's just something hard or complicated. It's not necessarily a trauma. It's not something that is me, like you were saying. It's not me, it's an experience that I'm having. So I'm able to keep those two things separate that the trauma isn't me, it is an experience in having it. So how long can I manage it before it becomes a trauma or before I'm done and I'm out and I'm over it? And so I say delusional optimism. I was thinking about this the other day where I thought, wow, it's so weird how I just think no matter how terrible things get for in any situation, whether it's related to me or something else, I'm always able to find this weird little light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. And for me, that is what resiliency means. And you went to 11 schools. I went to nine schools. And I think, yeah. you know, that's a big, you know, that's like just starting over your whole life. Like, what was the point? Why do we go to any schools? Like, and, and everything we know, <laughs> everything we're talking about, we didn't learn in school. No, <laughs> so. unfortunately. Yeah, I, I think and I, I love that. And I appreciate you sharing that experience, because one of the things that I always communicate with folks and the neuroscience is showing this now, that when you experience emotional, mental or relational pain, 
the part of your brain that processes pain is if you were actually physically injured is the exact same real estate. So your brain doesn't know the difference between an emotional pain point and a physical pain point. The same real estate manages that experience. So yeah. it's sort of like, oh, well, at least you don't have, you don't have shoulder pain. Yeah. yeah. You know what? I have the pain of having lost my spouse and one of my kids died in a car accident. You want to trade? It's not a Whoa. competition. <laughs> it's literally right. the same part of the brain processing it. And it gives us a chance to offer a lot of grace to each other to go, man, that's really hard for you because it's relative to your threshold. If we start right. understanding the pain is relative to our own threshold, then it, it helps us to understand why I can go through what I can go through, but also understand for somebody who has three migraines a year and they never have had any, why it's their hardest year too, right? Yeah, I, I hear you talk about migraines and I think I might have one migraine a year yeah. and think, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to die. Yeah. But And so then I think, oh my gosh, how do you do that? Okay, he does it. There's some... that. That's you know, resilience, right? That's mm-hmm. resilience. That is absolutely resilience. But that's the other point that I wanted to make too is that we have to be so careful about not getting into aces competitions and trauma, who's got it worse than who and when, because timing is so key yeah. and our support system around us play a part in that. And so mm-hmm. different things like we need to, I, I listen to people do ACEs surveys and I'm like, oh, I have four, I have nine, I have six, I have two. So who's worse off? And in the grand scheme of things, we know that somebody with an eight can actually be, have a much more satisfying life than somebody with a two. And, but it gets very, it gets, we, we talk about it in such shallow terms that like everything about you is your number of aces. And it's not like that at all, because the fact that I have more aces probably than average actually makes me a delusional optimist and love my life more than, you know, anything, because I have this level of appreciation for so many things that I wouldn't have had prior to, yeah. you know, certain very traumatic experiences. Yeah. If so you, if you take the last two minutes, Dr. B, and yeah. you just substitute the word ACEs for Enneagram type, you just described <laughs> most people's issue with the Enneagram. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's, like, okay. Every, it's, it's the nature of tribalistic and nationalistic thinking. And everybody is so over-identified with their diagnosis. And if yes. people understand that ACEs and Enneagram are diagnostic, not diagnoses, it will change okay. the way you engage in it. It is information, not a verdict or an indictment. It's something that helps you to understand how you got here. And then you get to decide based on neuroplasticity where you go. But if you over-identify nice. with type or experience, you get boxed in. And now you have this tribalistic, nationalistic kind of response that we see in the world today. And before oh. I forget, Seth, because I know we're over time and you got to run, brother. Can I give okay. a couple of book recommendations for listeners? That I think yeah. might be absolutely helpful. yeah from a neurology perspective yeah. anything by dan siegel anything oh yeah 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 <laughs> anything whole brain developing mind yeah and, whole and brain child. discipline uh one two three magic is a fantastic book attached by dr levine if you haven't started reading about attachment theory but then for <laughs> functional neurology anything by norman deutsch d-o-i-d-g-e the brain okay. that changes itself and the brain's way of healing. He calls them neuroplasticians. That's the same thing as okay. a neurologist. Mm-hmm. Okay. When you're thinking, I need a story of somebody that did something hard 
read a story about a Parkinson's patient who fixed himself because he just learned how to slow down, physically slow down, right? Mm. Wow. Norman Deutsch's work, Dan Siegel's work, those people have incredible stuff. And also access for people in all the spectrums is NIC, uh, NACIBM or NICABM, the National Institute for Clinical Applied Behavioral Medicine.com. Yes. NICABM. <laughs> their, okay. their visuals and their resources and their courses, especially around trauma and resilience and shame, they're really accessible. For professionals, they give you CEs. But even for parents and people, for people like, man, I need a chance to slow down and hear that again and hit pause. Their courses and their resources are really good for interpersonal neurobiology, which is what we're talking about. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Vander has the body that keeps the score. Yes. Yeah. You know, my grandma, Irisma Manacum. Oh, so many good ones. But I'm just throwing every them all out. You listed every book on my yeah. shelf at the There's moment. A but really, really weird guy named Dr. Jerome who wrote a book on the Enneagram and yeah. brains. You can see what I'm gonna. That is the book I'm buying right now. <laughs> yeah. But how do you spell Norman Deutsch? How do you? It's like Dodge with an I. D O I D G E. He also has a Netflix documentary. Okay. Okay, I'll I'll check him out. It, do you know who Amy Warner? This is old reading, okay. but uh, Amy Warner, it, sure. Vulnerable but invincible. She is my um, she's my shero, and that's that's who is like the mother of my dissertation. So, oh my gosh! And then you um, have the ancient saint of Brene Brown. So there's lots of great. Of course, mm. yes. Of course, of course, yeah. Brene. Yes. So <laughs> awesome. Well, I thanks so much, Jerome. Yes. Jerome, I hope you'll come back when I t we talk about epigenetics and when we start to talk about the clinical application with doctors, because you'd be amazing. Be oh my gosh. That's every day of the week. I think I'm, I might start yeah. a podcast called a sister podcast called Cautiously Pragmatic. Oh, I like that. <laughs> that's that's, uh, that's great. I, I, I beat up enough. I've dropped from cautiously optimistic to cautiously pragmatic. <laughs> so that's good for uh, but I just wanted to say thank you to Seth for putting us together. I know you, yes, you, Seth. you allow you put two sticks of dynamite in the same barrel together and then <laughs> Yes. Duck thank cover. you, Seth. Yeah. You're always awesome. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, to connect with you. Alrighty. Yeah. Thanks, okay. Guys. Until next time, both of you. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Have a great Bye. day. See you guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I appreciate the opportunity to connect with you. If you're interested in booking a training, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at my website, Dr. B Connections. There's a big button that says, book a training with Dr. B. It's that easy. If this show has been beneficial for you, please share it with your friends and family. Spreading the word about the show helps us grow our audience and helps continue to change the world together. Again, thanks so much for listening to Delusional Optimism. Now, go leave a life print. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Delusional Optimism brought to you by St. Agnes Medical Center and Every Neighborhood Partnership. We hope you're encouraged by Dr. B's message and find her tips helpful for managing life stressors and building a more resilient self. For more episodes in this special series, please visit St. Agnes Medical Center's website at www.samc.com. This episode is produced and published by the editing team at TruthWork Media. TruthWork Media is a full-fledged podcasting and social media agency located in South Bend, Indiana with clients all around the world. For more information, 
visit them at truthworkmedia.com. These materials and all discussions of these materials are for educational purposes only and do not constitute medical or mental health advice. The presenter is not a licensed mental health or medical service provider. If you need medical or mental health care or advice, you should contact your doctor or therapist, or you can contact your insurance company for a referral. This show and all of its contents are copyright 2020 Dr. B. Leave a Life Print. Reproduction or use requires written consent of Dr. Kristen Beasley.